Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to everyone here that is a father, uh, may someday be a father, uh, those who have a father. <laughs> happy Father's Day. I'm glad you're here today. It's interesting. I read today that Mother's Day is one of the most highly attended Sundays and Father's Day is one of the most lowly attended Sundays. And I think, you know, our church has always been a little bit um, strange, not following those patterns, but on this particular day, I think we are within the norm. <laughs> so, um, to all three of you, welcome. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Dale, thanks with the good work with the kids' focus. Anyone else think to themselves, this is a sweet story, and how's he reading so fluently upside down? Do you notice he's holding the book upside down? I could do that for like maybe a sentence or two, then I'd give up and go back to the old traditional hold to the side. But uh, he does this for a living, folks. So uh, good job. Thanks for sharing your gift with us. So um, today we are continuing in our Our Father teaching series, our learning adventure through the Lord's Prayer. That prayer which Jesus taught on the ser during the Sermon on the Mount. When, in response to those around him uh, being kind of pushed and pulled, uh, uh, taught so many different things about prayer. I mean, we can assume, we can understand that in the life with God, prayer happens, that we are to pray, but just like anything else in the, in the religious life, in, in the spiritual uh, life, following after Jesus, the good things that God offers us, the invitations we're given, can be twisted. They can be kind of like turned into things that they weren't meant to be. And so uh, the people around Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, they had been influenced by the Pharisees, uh, by the religious leaders, by the priests, by... Um, other, other Jews, um, they'd seen stuff happening in other cultures. So they're getting a lot of different messages, a lot of mixed messages about prayer, how to pray. Well, this prayer is really legitimate and that prayer is not legitimate. So they asked Jesus, how do we pray? And Jesus says, well, here's how you pray. When you pray, pray like this. And then he unloads, unfolds, unfurls the whole Lord's Prayer. And it's with us even here today. And it's still something we need to hear, something we need to learn. Uh, so I think it's been a good time, and it will continue to be a good time as we spend time uh, learning, just moving slowly through that Lord's Prayer. So uh, today's message is called, this is, actually, you'll be excited to know this. Uh, this is week number nine in our series. And today's message is called The Silent Planet. The Silent Planet. Guys, today I'm going to try something risky. I'm going to attempt something this morning that is very, very risky. I am going to open with a science fiction illustration. And that, my friends, is risky. Why? Why is it risky to open a sermon with a science fiction <laughs> reference or illustration? Well, because science fiction is weird, right? Why is it weird? Because it takes place in a different world, a different reality, something uh, far different from ours. Uh, and also, add to that, you may not be familiar with this particular story. You've probably been trapped in a conversation where someone's really excited about a science fiction story they read, and you haven't, but they insist on telling you about it, and your pupils quickly turn into little spirals, because you're like, I have no idea. Because they're immersed in this whole world that you're not familiar with, so you're just smiling and nodding, like, yeah, bless your heart. You know, great, thanks, I'm glad you enjoyed your story. Well, anyway, I'm going to try that today. I'm going to give an opening science fiction illustration a shot. And maybe it'll help if I show you a picture. I've got a picture up there of, uh, of the, uh, what I'm going to talk about today. The Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis. By a show of hands, anyone familiar with the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis? Oh good, so I won't lose everyone in the room. That's great. 
So sometimes, sometime during the great pandemic lockdown of Ought 20, I reread C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, which as an aside, if you have a library card, you can get the Hoopla app and listen to this on audiobook, which is actually what I did this time around, and it's excellent, and it's free. Anyway, I, listen, I reread, re-listened to the C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, a sci-fi series following the main character named Dr. Elwin Ransom. Elwin Ransom. Now, this work was written uh, from 1938 to 1945, around the same time that Tolkien was writing The Lord of the Rings. That's interesting, huh? And it's said that the Space Trilogy was one of the works that was read aloud among the Inklings um, in Oxford as it was being written, as it was in progress. This is one of the things that Lewis would read to the Inklings to kind of get their feedback and uh, input as it was being written. That's pretty awesome. Now, in the first book of the trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Dr. Ransom is kidnapped. He's kidnapped and then transported by a nefarious group of men to the planet Mars, which in this story, it's not called Mars, it's called Malacandra. Malacandra. He is being taken to Malacandra to be given to, a, to the Sorns. See, this is where it's getting like, uh-oh. <laughs> He's being taken to Malacandra to be given to the Sorns uh, as a sacrifice. Now, the Sorns are a mysterious Malacandrian species that are kind of uh, very tall and very slender and very th kind of threatening as you read about them. Now, then in the second book, Paralandra, Paralandra, Dr. Ransom, which, spoiler alert, Dr. Ransom doesn't die in the first one. He's not, he doesn't get sacrificed. Sorry. He doesn't die on Mars or Malacandra. He is then, in the second book, Paralandra, visiting Venus, which, as you might have guessed, is not called Venus, it's called Paralandra. This time, he has traveled there by the invitation of the Oyarsa, which Oyarsa are angels, kind of quote-unquote angels in the story, uh, by the Oyarsa of Venus, or Paralandra. Now, in the third volume, or the final volume, That Hideous Strength, Dr. Ransom is thankfully back on earth. He's back on earth and he's leading a struggle against the powers of Fulcandra. Fulcandra is the fallen angel of earth or the fallen Oyarsa over the earth. Okay, is everyone still with me a little bit here? Okay, I'm going slowly and enunciating well. So, Now in the space trilogy it's important to understand that every planet uh, has a ruling angel. Every planet in the story has a ruling angel or a ruling Oyarsa. A ruling Oyarsa. And that planet is actually named after that Oyarsa. Okay? Uh, and uh, an Oyarsa uh, is like an angel and they serve under... I mean, this is really getting thick, but they serve under the authority of Meleldil. Meleldil who is the son of the old one, and he is the creator of the universe and all the planets. You see kind of the parallel here? Okay, so the Oyarsa are angels, and they serve under the, uh, the authority and the sovereignty of Meleldil, who is the creator of the universe. Now, the Oyarsa of Mars is named Malacandra, as a way of review here. The Oyarsa of Venus is called Paralandra. And the Oyarsa of Earth is named Tholkandra, which also means the bent one. 
the bent one. And Fulcandra is confined to earth because of, you guessed it, his past evil and rebellion against Maleldil. You're like, what? This sounds like a familiar story. Perhaps. Fulcandra, the bent one, who is the Oyarsa of earth, is no longer allowed by Maleldil, the creator, to have contact with the other Oyarsu of the planets. Oyarsu is Oyarsa, plural. So if you're talking about more than one Oyarsa, it's Oyarsu. Got it? <laughs> Write that in your notes. But Fulcandra, the bent one, is no longer to have, allowed by Maleldil to have contact with the other Oyarsa. Thus, for ages past, and this is important, this is key, Fulcandra, the planet Earth, has become a silent planet. Because of the rebellion and evil of, 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 of Fulcandra, the bent one, Earth has become a silent planet in the galaxy. It is observed from the other planets, and it is seen to be becoming more and more dark, more and more chaotic, more and more isolated from Maleldil and his activity and presence in the rest of the universe. It's quite a story. How many are interested in reading it now? Did I help or hurt that quest? It's really a great story, and it's not as confusing as I probably made it sound there. But here's the thing. One, of the aspect, one aspect Lewis brings out in his space trilogy is how the old one, Maleldil, and the Oyarsu, who are the planetary angels, they are cosmic beings who are very different. They're very different than the planetary creatures, the various planetary creatures that you come across in the three volumes. Here's the thing. We human beings, we default by nature to location and time-based thinking. Our thinking is naturally framed by time and location. Why is this? Well, it's for a couple of reasons. We're, we don't live forever. We are stuck in time, but we're also planted in a place. We're always in one place at a time. We are limited. We are limited to being one place at one time. We cannot be in more than one place at one time. If you found this to be true, I mean, I don't think anyone's confused by that. Like, what? Are you serious? No, it's true. You can only be in one place at one time. Now, moms make you wonder. They can be in a lot of places at once, I think. They do so much. But um, this is Father's Day. So us fathers, we can only be in one place at one time. And... Most of the time we're taking a nap when we're in that one place. Anyway, as a result, we as humans, we struggle. We struggle when we come up against concepts of omnipresence. Does anyone know what omnipresence means? All present. To be uh, everywhere at all times in full power. We believe that God is omnipresent, right? We believe that he's everywhere all the time in full power, but that, guys, it's okay to acknowledge that's a tough nut to crack. How does that actually work? And my answer is this. Who knows? I don't know. I'm not sure exactly the inner workings uh, on how that sausage is made. I'm not sure how omnipresence actually works. How you can be fully present everywhere all the time in full power. But in the space trilogy, the challenge of the Oyarsu, the angels, the planetary angels, is not in being everywhere all the time. That's not the challenging part. The challenge is in them focusing their whole being all in one place at the same time. 
What seems to be the challenge for them is to concentrate them whole, their whole selves into a, a single point in space and time. To take their full universal presence and focus it to be in one spot at one time. That seems to be the challenge. So, when the Oyarsu, the planetary angels, remember, when they arrive in the story and are seen by Dr. Ransom, how do they appear? This is what was so interesting to me. They appear as a, as a slanting column of light. It's like he sees them and they're like not perpendicular to the earth, they're or to Paralandra or wherever. Uh, they're a slanting column of light filled with energy, seeming, as it were, to struggle, to stand still in one place. It's just like there's this kinetic energy to it, like right here in front of him. And he's like, this is so weird. Concentrating all of who they are into one space to meet with a created being, it seemed to require work, like they were leaning into the wind, like they were leaning into the wind, uh, showing a determination to meet with that person in that place at that point in time in order to affect change there in that place. That was one of the most exciting parts of the book, just to see the Oyarsu come and be visible and seem to be that there was a challenge to just be all there right then. Now this idea was interesting and refreshing to me because it made me think of the Incarnation. It made me think of the Incarnation, uh, in, uh, of how incredible it was that Jesus, the Creator God in the flesh, could focus His whole being, His whole timeless, everywhere all the time being, to come here and be with us. More than that, to come and be as a helpless baby. How does that work? How does that happen? Think about it. Jesus, the eternally existent God, constantly present in all the universe, choosing, desiring to concentrate His will, His desire, and His plan to come to the earth, condescending to be with us, to rescue a fallen and bent creation. This is what I think the Apostle Paul is getting at when he describes the holy and divine nature of Jesus coming to dwell among us on earth. I'd invite you to look at Philippians chapter 2. Look at Philippians 2. And this is a popular hymn of praise to Jesus. But uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You must, Paul says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave and was born of a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God. He died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does stuff like this ever blow your mind? Man, when I consider the eternality, the omnis of God, the omnipresence, omnipotence, the omniscience of God, and think about Jesus coming to be with us, to dwell among us, God with us, Emmanuel, it just, it's like a little mushroom cloud above my head. This blows my mind. But regrettably, we can spend so much time in church hearing uh, Bible stories, learning Bible stories, that we don't even blink anymore when we hear that God is everywhere in space and time, yet He's also here. He's here and there, now and always. He's 
all the, everywhere all the time in full power, yet he chooses to be here with us. And then we hear about this God choosing to humiliate himself, humiliate himself and become one of us to come to our silent planet and rescue us. Now this word humiliate, humiliate, have you ever done a word study on this? The root word of humiliate is the same word that we use to get humble. So God humbles himself to come down, to be with us in Christ. Uh, the, the word humility, humiliate means to humble. It actually means to make low. It means to come down to the ground and become of the soil. You might also notice that the same root word is the same root word for another one. Human. Human. Of the soil. Get it? Jesus humiliated himself to come and be one of us. Humbled himself. Became human. Became of the same soil as us. To redeem us. To rescue our fallen silent planet. This is really remarkable. The ability, the ability and the willingness of our Creator God to come, to stand against the wind with us in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, to live, to die, to rise again for our salvation, and to save our silent planet. This is remarkable. I pray that we never get over that. I pray that we never get over what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that each of us would respond to this remarkable power and grace that God has shown us in Jesus. So as we continue, as we continue in our study of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer Jesus taught us and taught His disciples in Matthew chapter 6, we get a sense of a cosmic reality, a sense that there's lots more going on than what we see right in front of us at any given moment. Up in the background, in the backdrop of our existence, there's so much going on that is beyond what we can understand. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how God uh, is in heaven. Where's God's home? It's in heaven. In His place. What is heaven like? It's a sinless place. Heaven is a sinless place. It is a place marked by holiness and marked by worship. If you ask someone, where is heaven, what will they do? They will likely point to the sky, right? They'll, they'll likely point up. It's like, it's up there. It's up there somewhere. That's where heaven is. Ideas of heaven, they universally carry with it uh, the uh, thoughts of otherness. Ideas of somewhere elseness, okay? No one says, where is heaven? It's like, Missouri. <laughs> I mean, weirdos in Texas, people in Texas talk about Texas that way, but it's not true. I lived in Texas for three years, and I can tell you, Texas is not heaven. But if you go there, you'll be there about five minutes before someone alludes to that fact. But Texas is not heaven. Everyone else on the planet, if you ask them where is heaven, they're going to point up, probably. Okay, and it's this other place. It's this other place. I apologize to anyone who is from Texas. I love you. I just think you're wrong. Anyway, ideas of heaven carry with it uh, thoughts of otherness and somewhere else-ness. Likewise, in today's part of the Lord's Prayer, that part we're going to look at in verse 10, uh, we can get a feeling of that otherness. We can sense that separateness once again as we recognize that how things are in God's place, how things are in heaven, are very different from how things are here in our place. Have you read the Lord's Prayer and got that sense of like, yeah, man, things are different. Where God is, things are different, things are better. 
I want things there to become things here. We get that sense, that separation. We rightly get the sense that things are more whole. Things are more real where God is in heaven. And we cry out. We pray that His reality would become more and more our reality here in this place on earth. Christians for centuries, millennia past have cried out, God, may your will be done, your kingdom come. What it's like there, make it like that here. We believe you will, and may you do it quickly. We look around and we see the sin, the brokenness, the evil, and the injustice that is so rampant here. And we've all been touched by it. We've all been touched by the bentness of living on what really does feel like a silent planet. We feel like we live on this silent planet that is cut off from God. It's cut off from God's will, cut off from God's power. We live in a shadow and we're surrounded by chaos and it seems to only be getting worse. We feel a growing desperation for God's kingdom to come, His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, for His healing to come here and please now. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Let's pay attention to verse 10, especially today. Pray like this, Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Verse 10 again. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, during Jesus' ministry, Jesus didn't like make this prayer up completely out of, out of the air. There was a, a, a pattern to it. There was a long cry of Israel wrapped up in it. During Jesus' earthly ministry, at the close of every synagogue service, every time the Jews would gather in synagogue and worship, and believe me, Jesus would have been very, very familiar with this. At the end of every worship service in the synagogue, faithful Jews would recite an, an ancient Aramaic prayer, a doxology of sorts, a hymn of praise, and it was called the Kaddish. The Kaddish, which means sanctification. They would conclude their time in worship like we do with certain things we do every time we're closing together. They would say the Kaddish. And this is in English. It's not in Hebrew or in Aramaic, so bear with me. But this is what it says. Listen closely. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. May He let His kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. And to this we say, Amen. Listen again. Do you see any patterns here or things that Jesus would have tapped into? Like you're familiar with this. Jesus so many times said, you've heard it said. But I tell you this. Listen. Exalted and hallowed be His great name in the world, which He created according to His will. May He let His kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days, and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel, speedily and soon. And to this we say, Amen. One hears parallels in there, don't we? We hear parallels of what godly Jews would pray and what Jesus included in His framework on how His disciples should pray. We should, in a different form, be asking for the same thing. Please, your kingdom come and don't delay. 
To pray to see God's kingdom come and his will be done has long been on the lips of the faithful. It's long been cr the cry of those who desire God's will to be expressed in all the earth. Why is this so? Well, the Expositor's Bible Commentary uh, explains the prayer of the faithful this way, and I think it's helpful. Um, and I know when I read quotes like this, it's hard to see because it's not in a meme. But just imagine it. It's a meme, okay? <laughs> and it'll be memorable. You know, you see quotes in a meme, and you're like, that's good. You know, and you retweet it or whatever. But it's hard to just listen. But listen, this is really rich and really good. So maybe if you need to close your eyes and tilt your head, do that. As God is eternally holy... So he eternally reigns in absolute sovereignty. Yet, it is appropriate to pray not only, Hallowed be your name, but also, Your kingdom come. God's kingdom, or reign, can refer to that, that aspect of God's sovereignty under which there is life. That kingdom is breaking in under Christ's ministry, but is not consummated until the end of the age. To pray, your kingdom come, is therefore simultaneously to ask that God's saving royal rule be extended now as people bow in submission to him and already taste the eschatological blessing of salvation and to cry for the consummation of the kingdom. Holy smokes. Big words in there. <laughs> but what it's saying is, to pray your kingdom come is therefore simultaneously at the same time to be asking that God's saving royal rule be extended now as people bow in submission or obedience to him and already taste the eschatological blessing. What does eschatological mean? The end times, how things will play out. The fulfillment of time. Okay, eschatological blessing of salvation and to cry for the consummation of the kingdom. What does consummation mean? The fulfillment. The coming together. The, 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 the no longer waiting. It's real. Now. Your kingdom has come. So, to pray, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is again, like everything else we found in the Lord's Prayer, to be praying a mouthful, to be saying a whole lot. There's a whole lot of theology, a whole lot of hope and anticipation wrapped up in every phrase of the Lord's Prayer. So, in asking God's will here, if we're, God, your will be done here, when we say that, we are committing ourselves in three ways. Okay, when you say, your will be done, your kingdom come, your, be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are committing ourselves to three things. We're committing ourselves in three ways. First, we desire, we're saying, God, I desire to know. I desire to obey your will. Is that what you're saying when you pray it? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in that I am saying, I desire to know you and to obey your will. Because I believe your will is good, pleasing, and perfect. I desire to know it because it's good, pleasing, and perfect. Look at uh, Romans 1, uh, 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Here again, Paul explains... And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let 
them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We are told and we believe we confess that God's way is the best way, that His righteous commands upon us are the best way to live. They are the way, indeed, that leads to life. So when we say, your, will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we desire, we are saying, I desire to know and to obey your will. So secondly, we trust. We trust in God's ability and His willingness to bring certain events in redemptive history to pass. Okay, so not only do we desire to know and obey his, his will, we trust in His ability, but more than that, His willingness to bring that to pass. Okay, He wants to do it as well, right? He wants to bring about certain activities in redemptive history. He wants to bring those into our reality. These events include, but are not limited to, Jesus' incarnation, the decision, the activity in sending Jesus to dwell among us, uh, Jesus' work of atonement on the cross, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' coming return, Jesus' second coming. These are the desires of God's heart. So not only does He want to do it, He desires to do or it, it. Not only is He able to do it, He desires to do it as well. So we can trust in that. So the first commitment is we desire to know and obey God's will. The second commitment is that I trust when we say this, I say, God, I trust you. I trust you are able and willing to make this so. Now, the third commitment we make in praying verse 10 of the Lord's Prayer is that we long, we long for God's will to be expressed and accomplished here on earth just as it is expressed and accomplished in heaven. There's a surrender happening here, like, yes, please make that way our way here. We want that. We long for that. Dallas Willard, in his book, uh, The Divine Conspiracy, man, he says it so beautifully and so powerfully. Here's another long quote. Cock your head. Here we go. It's so good, though. When Jesus directs us to pray, Thy kingdom come, He does not mean we should pray for it to come into existence. Rather, we pray for it to take over. It already exists, so God, make it take over. Invade our place. We pray for it to take over at all points in the personal, social, and political order where it is now excluded. <laughs> On earth as it is in heaven. With this prayer, we are invoking it as in faith we are acting it into the real world of our daily existence. Jesus came among us to show and teach the life for which we were made. He came gently opened access to the governance of God with him, and set afoot a conspiracy of freedom and truth among human beings. Having overcome death, Jesus remains among us by relying on his word and presence. We are enabled to reintegrate the little realm that makes up our life into the infinite rule of God, and that is the eternal kind of life. Caught up in his active rule, our deeds become an element in God's eternal history. 
Did you hear that? Caught up in his active rule, our deeds become an element in God's eternal history. They are what God and we do together making us part of his life and him a part of ours. So when we live in obedience, when we set about doing the good works that God planned in advance for us to be doing, in a little way, in this particular place and time, we're bringing together heaven and earth. We're seeing that prayer answered. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I obey, when I seek justice, uh, love, love mercy, and walk humbly with God in the days I've been given, I even now am giving a glimpse of the kingdom come. Heaven and earth being brought together. My life becomes part of God's life. My friends, someday there will no longer be separation, but unification will, will happen. It'll no longer be a separation there. We'll no longer need to pray, verse 10. Do you get that? We'll no longer need to pray that part of the Lord's Prayer because it will happen. There will be no more separation. Unification will take place. The unification of God's place and our place in that promise of the new creation. All things made new. Essentially, through our obedience to God's moral will and our commitment to His providential will, we eagerly await the day when there is no more up there to heaven. There's no more far away, some other placeness to heaven. But it's come into our reality. God's place, our place, they've come together. When God's kingdom comes... When God's will is done, all brokenness and sin will be no more. Our silent planet will shout for joy. The rocks will cry out and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Praise the Lord. Lord Jesus, come soon, we pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we uh, learn the discipline to move slowly through the Lord's Prayer. That when we open our mouths and we open our hearts to express our desires to you, I pray that we would understand all that we're saying. That we wouldn't speak thoughtlessly, that we wouldn't speak flippantly, but we would consider all the commitments we're making when we pray the Lord's Prayer. When we say to you, God, we actually desire your kingdom to come here. We really desire your will to be expressed here in our time. Your rule and reign to be the rule and reign on the earth. God, I pray that we would take that seriously and I pray that we would live in the light of that reality, that promise that Jesus is expressing uh, in the prayer, but that we see uh, promised further in Scripture. God, it's no secret that your desire is to do away with that separation, to make all things new. The, the eschatological, the end times vision is that of a new heavens and a new earth and it's all in the same place. It's a new city, a new Jerusalem where God and His people are dwelling together perfectly, healed and made whole. So God, may we set our hearts and our minds upon that. May we understand that what we do today, what we do this week, every interaction we have, the small actions, the larger efforts, God, they are ways in which we have opportunity to bring heaven and earth together, 
to give a glimpse of your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, I pray that we would live with anticipation. I pray that we would live into our commitments, those things that we're saying as we pray that prayer, our desires, our trusting, and our longing. Lord, we believe that you are able, and in Christ we believe that you are willing to make it so, and we pray that you would. I pray for my friends here that have been following Jesus. I pray that they would pause and that they would feel the depth, the magnitude of what God desires to accomplish among us and what He set in motion all the way from Abraham through Jesus and in His church even now. I pray that uh, we would uh, feel the anguish of living on a fallen planet, a silent planet, and desire the day when the earth will no longer groan, and will no longer cry out, will no longer be subdued by shadow and chaos but will be set free. We pray that Christ would come soon. I pray for my friends who've never followed Jesus. I pray that their hearts would quicken with hope, understanding that God's way is the best way. It is the true way to live, the true way to be fully human. God, draw us all close. Thank you for what you did through Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Hey, we're going to take a few minutes here to worship and just spend time with the Lord. Maybe you should open to Matthew 6 and maybe pray through that Lord's Prayer. See how well your life is lining up with that. Offer that to God and help, him help you see what corrections, what insights need to be given so that you might live it more faithfully and commit to it more fully. So we're going to sing a song and make the most of this opportunity.